Brothers and sisters, we are returning back to our walk through the book of James, and this evening we are still in chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses uh, 9 through 11. You'll find it on uh, page 1011 if you're utilizing a pew Bible that is 1011. Three short verses. Let's dig right into them. This is God's holy and inerrant word. So let us give careful attention to it as they are being read. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with his scorching heat and withers the grass. It flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Again, our Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessings on the hearing and the preaching of your word. It is your, uh, <clears throat> you have ordained that we would grow through this means of grace. You have ordained that we would be molded and shaped into the image of our Lord. And so we ask that you would do exactly that which you've ordained for us. We ask that you would grab hold of us, give us clarity of mind, thought, Illumine our minds, give us sight to see so that we might understand all that you would have us to know so that we might grow in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, it was, in this, <clears throat> it was in September and October of last year that we had the blessing of working our way through the hearing and preaching of the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. It was then that we revisited a verse that I constantly uh, allude to and hear about all the time, Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, a huge reason why I allude to Romans 8.28 as much as I do is because it serves as a great source of comfort and encouragement as one deals with the inevitable challenges and trials that come our way as a consequence of our dealing with the world, our falling human nature, and the enemy of our souls, Satan. And the reason I'm referring to it here as an introductory source to the passage we have before us is because they both have a common critical element that has to be considered if one is going to benefit from what both texts communicate to us. And that common element is this. One has to view what one sees and hears in both passages from a perspective that lies outside of one's self. For how else would you be able to reconcile 828 in our minds in light of some of the life's hardest circumstances? How can a person who has just been told that they have stage four cancer, that the cells that are supposed to be working on their behalf have turned against them and are now eating away at their body, moving them towards earthly extinction, that you understand that they don't have a good enough insurance to cover the cost of their treatment and so the prospect that they will lose every dime of their savings and investments is about as sure as a reality as they rose out of bed this morning and their children then would be left without anything. How can you tell a young family 
who has lost every source of income they had. And now they're li literally living outside in their car, rather. Just last week, the wife, that same wife, miscarried him before she gave birth to a stillborn who was excitedly going to be their first, firstborn son. Think of all the horrific things that happen to people in this world. And here, particularly in the life of those who profess faith in Christ. Rape, murder, mental illness, on and on. It rains on the just and in the unjust. Much suffering, and you are supposed to hear all things work together for good. And I'm supposed to, to digest that. How in the world can we make sense of any of it? How can we tell a person all things work together for good unless there's a perspective that's more fully informed than ours, one that can be grasped and held on to and thus serve to help us along on this lane, this highway known as interstate sanctification, this road where we're being molded and, and shaped into the image of our Lord, being made to be more and more like him. As it pertains to Romans 8, our first clue to this grace distilled perspective is found in verses 5 and 6, which says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You see, one is earthly and the other is heavenly. For to set the mind on the flesh, the verse goes on to say, is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And shortly thereafter, in verse 18 in chapter 8, we hear these words, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To us. That is those who belong to God. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 then goes on to inform us that creation, the very creation is groaning to be renewed. We ourselves are inwardly groaning to experience the redemption of our bodies. And the spirit is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. All this, Paul tells us, has one telos, one end in mind. Our glorification, our being in front of our God who has called us, a fulfillment it is of what God the Father promised, God the Son before the foundation of the world, a people for himself, his body, the church. It is only when one experientially internalizes this perspective, God's perspective, that one is able to hold on to the peace that surpasses all understanding that is there for us to hold on to. It is then that we can turn to this chapter and make sense of what we see in verses 2 through 4, which says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now with our heavenly lens, we can see, hear, and understand the ultimate end of each and every trial we face. And at this point, we can ask the question, can you give me an example of what it would look like to count it all joy in the face of various trials? I believe if James were here, he might have replied, yes, 
I'll give you two and a most important warning concerning one of them. So this evening I'm going to attempt to share those with you under three headings. First, the benefit of trials in the life of the lowly esteemed person. Second, the benefits of trials in the life of the highly esteemed person or the rich. And third, the futility of the pursuit of earthly riches without God. And so first, the benefit of trials in the life of lowly esteemed, of the lowly esteemed person. Look at verse 1. It reads, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Here it's helpful to know that in, in James' day, there was no middle class as we know it. Folks were either on the lower end of the economic ladder or they were on the higher end of the economic ladder. If you're on the lower end, you served others. If you were on the higher end, you were served. Add to that the fact that Christian persecution had caused some who were previously well-to-do to lose much, or in some cases, all that they had, and you now had a bunch of folks whose common lot was that of poverty and want. Now, where there was no lack, there was great concern for family and self. And this wasn't a temporary state. This was a trial, hunger, lack, poverty that seemed to have no end. In the midst of that, losing all that one had and never having had anything to begin with in some cases and chronically remaining in that state, that James says something that just seems out of place. He says, count it all joy. What? How? The answer by boasting in their exaltation. Commenting on this, John MacArthur wrote, despite the circumstances, However, such a believer was to glory in his high position in Christ. James is speaking of a legitimate form of pride that even the most destitute Christian can have in his high position as a child of God and in the countless blessings that position brings. He may be considered the scum of the world, the dregs of all <clears throat> things in the eyes of the world, but in God's eye he is exalted. He may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he has the water of life. He may be poor, but he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he has eternally received, he has been eternally received by God. He may have no home on earth, but he has a glorious abode in heaven. Listen, John then goes on to say something that's very curious or instructive here. He writes, when God in his wisdom and sovereignty takes away physical possessions from some of his children, it is for the purpose of making them spiritually mature. Don't miss that. John is saying that our trials are often brought about by God's providence and are always, as we've already heard, for our good. You see, our trials cause us to look to God, to depend on God, to desire God, and to rest in him. This disposition in and of itself is greater than the things we might have lost or the things that we're dealing with on this side of life. Listen to what the Apostle Peter has to say on this front. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Again, we're called to clothe ourselves in a heavenly perspective as we deal with the travails of this world, our fallen human nature, and the enemy of our souls, Satan. My friend, you might be going through some stuff right now. You might not have all you need. And you, and if what you're dealing with were to manifest itself as a person, it would be twice as big as Goliath. Here, James is saying, rest in the knowledge that you are on equal footing with all who believe, both in possession and in position. Live in the light of that truth. Speak boldly on that front and know that the end of your journey is filled with celestial lights lit by the light of the world in whose presence you'll be forevermore. This is the perspective that those who are lowly, those who are poverty stricken, those who are marginalized, those who are Christians and call God their God, their Lord, this is the perspective they should have come what may. Whatever trials come our way, we should understand that indeed all things do work together for good. Indeed, we can count it all joy. Indeed, we can because God is our rock. Because we have an eternal destination that is second to none. James, after addressing that group, immediately turns to the other group of folks who were around that time the rich, and says to them, boast in your humiliation. Our second point, the benefits of trials in the life of the highly esteemed person, the high and mighty, some might say. Now here there's an argument as to whether or not James is speaking to Christians. I'm going to take the position of the scholars who says that he is, and then I'm going to assert that the position of the scholars, that, that the trials cause, rather, this lowly esteemed person to fix their gaze on Christ so that it takes the eyes of the rich off of their riches and it places them towards Christ. You see, it's not a sin to be rich. We need to make that point. Boaz was rich. King David was rich. Solomon was rich. Solomon did not ask God for riches. He asked God for wisdom. But God blessed him with wealth and much more as a consequence of his response, his godly-oriented response to God. But speaking to the issue of trials in the life of the rich, listen to what one scholar writes. He wrote, just as a materially poor believer should rejoice in his spiritual riches, the materially rich man should glory in his humiliation. The idea is that a believer who is materially well-off, healthy and otherwise physically blessed, should rejoice when trials come, for they teach him the transient nature of those material things and their inability to give inner and lasting satisfaction or help, especially spiritual help. Solomon testifies to that fact in Ecclesiastes 5 when he writes, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And then he says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by the owner, 
to his hurt. I tell you right now I'm hearing the echoes of the verse that says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? If trials, brothers and sisters, are what's necessary to bring a person of great wealth to a place of grace, then isn't that the greatest blessing that person could ever receive outside of the regeneration of their soul? Shouldn't that person who has a Christ-centered worldview be able to recognize and be encouraged by the trials that they're going in that cause them to look away from their wealth and towards God? I tell you, they will. Brothers and sisters, let me say it plainly. The pursuit of earthly riches, which will be our third point heading, is as Solomon labeled in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity with no good end in sight. And here in our, James tells us why. Look at verses 10b, the second part of 2. He says, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Time after time after time, you see in scripture, warnings against running after wealth. Again, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, but time after time, here you see uh, James is echoing Isaiah 40, but in 1 Peter 1.24, like James does, Peter reminds us of the nature of utilizing similar verbiage like we see here. His, again, is a direct quote. He says, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass wither and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You know, as I was looking at this particular passage, I couldn't help but thinking about, and sometimes you have to be careful, but I couldn't help but thinking about these flowers that are put out here every week. And the reason I say you got to be careful is because, you know, sometimes people purchase this in honor of different things, and so you don't want to see be saying anything. But the reality of the situation is, look how beautiful those flowers are. Aren't they beautiful? They're just beautiful, you know? And sometimes they get put in the hallway after we move them from here, and I start scheming on them to take them to, you know, other people, and sometimes to, to my wife, you know, so I can pretend like I'm doing something good, you know? <laughs> but the reality of the situation is like, if you leave it for too long, it goes from looking like this to some crumpled stuff. Like you came to my house right now and looked up by, you know, and I think you'd see what I'm talking about because those flowers are there since I think Valentine's and they look like this, you know. <laughs> but anyhow, that's the picture you have here, you know. Flowers are beautiful. And out in Israel, in this part of the land where these uh, folks were, they knew that. They understood that the beauty of these things, but they also understood the nature of when the weather came and shriveled those things up. They were gone. They were gone here today and gone tomorrow. This reminds me of Jesus' word via a parable in Luke 13. The land of the rich man produced plentiful, he said. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have no way to steer my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. 
Now you tell me if the grace of God had showed up in this man's life and took every single thing that he had and caused him to be destitute like Lazarus who was at the gate of the rich man but then ended up in Abraham's bosom. You tell me that this man would not have been in a better state if that had happened to him, if God had caused trials to come into his life. You tell me if Job didn't get raised up in his understanding of God by the trials that he dealt with. God never gave him a reason for why he did what he did, but at the end of that whole thing, Job surely understood and knew and trusted as he did the entire time, but even more so in the knowledge of the God that he had as God walked him and kept him through that. Remember, God told Satan he could only deal with him so far. So all that can happen to us in terms of the enemies dealing with us is the enemy can only deal with us as much as God allows for our sanctification. You know, when you're talking about uh, smoothing down wood and doing all this kind of stuff in building, you have to take stuff like sandpaper and grate it. And then you see in scripture it talks about iron sharpens iron. And so in order for something to be perfected, it, re it, it necessitates that you use friction or something coarse against it. And in the same way in our sanctification, trials help us to grow. They help us to rely on God. And which one of us, if we had no trials in our life, tell the truth. If you had no trials in your life, would you rely on God all, at all times? When do you become the most prayerful? When, when do you turn to God and say, Lord, help me? Isn't it when your child is wayward? Isn't it when there's sickness in your body? Isn't it when all these sort of stuff is going on? Now, again, you know, we in a fallen world, we bring things upon ourselves. In a fallen world, there's an enemy that comes against us. But we do know that God is utilizing all those things to bring us to glory and to sharpen us and to cause us to comfort one another in the midst of the things we're dealing with. This evening, I'd like to close with a quote that I found to be too good not to share. The scholar wrote, when you lose a daughter, son, wife, husband, or other loved one, wealth is no comfort. When you lose your health, are betrayed by a friend, or are wrongfully maligned, money cannot buy peace of mind or decrease the pain. Trials are the great equalizer, bringing all of God's children to dependence on him. Wealth does not bring us closer to God, nor does poverty keep us from him. In light of that truth and the present text, the beautiful, well-known passage from Hebrews could be modified to read, and then he adds the word equal in each case. Therefore, let us draw near with equal confidence, rich and poor, to the throne of grace so that we, rich and poor, equally receive mercy and rich and poor equally find grace to help in time of need. You know, I remember when I was doing child protective investigations, I, I had this, this thought in my mind that the rich lived on the high horse and they had everything going for them and so on and so forth. And then I would go into homes that were literally bought for maybe $20,000 to $30,000 in poor neighborhoods. And I would walk in there and they would have issues with you know, the children, abuse and all sorts of stuff. Stuff like waste on the ground and these side of the thing, the house was broken down and stuff. And it, it validated in my mind what I was saying about the poor. But then I went into rich houses that was you know, $5 million homes 
dealing with professors of high class institutions, universities, and so on and so forth. And you know what I found? I found that the same mess that happened in the poor houses were happening in the rich houses, but in a different way. And there were different types of drugs in the low areas than they were in the high, but there were still drugs. There were still the ravages of this world killing and drawing from all sides. The great equalizer. And these, the unsaved in those situations, they have no hope. There's no reality for them to live by and through that says there is an end to what I'm dealing with. The end is often divorce and, and suicide and all sorts of things in these places that I was talking about. I was in a situation where I went into a home and an uncle killed the children's mom by stabbing her 36 times in front of the children. And this is, again, a gated community that we went into, that I went into, and here you are thinking these people are living the life. There is no life outside of Christ, and trials help us to turn to Christ to see that very thing. May we all recognize the trials in our lives as things that are causing us to turn to our Lord, to depend on him. And if you're like me, part of your prayer is, Lord, you know what? You really don't need to give me no bad trial. I'm going to do the right thing. You ain't got to make me broke. You ain't got to hurt me. I'm going to try to do my right thing, okay? So if you're like me, that's how you're going to act, all right? But the reality of the situation is we should understand that God is using everything in the life, in our lives as Christian, for, his, for our good and according to his purpose. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Our glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we can look to you in the midst of all crises, all storms. Look to you and be able to say like Joseph, all these forces meant it for evil, but you, God, are meaning it for good. You are causing all things to work together for good for those of us that love you and are called according to your purpose. We pray, Lord, that we are never lifted up in, our, in the sense that we would depend on the material goods that we have and cause those things to be idols that we're so prone to do. But can you, would you cause us, Lord, to rather fix our eyes and our gaze upon you and to walk with you knowing that you are our keeper, our sustainer, and you are all the riches we need. Give us the mind to have a perspective to look heavenly, heavenward, in all of our situations that we deal with here. Our Lord said that he did not call, or he's not praying for us to get out of this world, but to be here and to serve and to accomplish your purposes. So while we do that, we ask again that you would give us your wisdom, the wisdom to walk through trials knowing that you are the one that's allowing these things for our good again and for your purpose. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.